that it's true as you walk with the Lord and read His Word is the increasing theme. And it starts to make sense as you approach it by faith. And I know in your notes it has Ephesians 4. I'm going to ask that we hold on to that for a while. I believe that we do need to read Ephesians 4 and we do need to study that. And I hope to do that in about uh, three weeks, Lord willing. Uh, I think it is a very much a culmination of what we've talked about in the Spirit of God. In the church body, the gifts of God's Spirit and the working together. But it became increasing as I was getting closer to this day that I needed to share with you something of the book of James. Um, I see that uh, the women will have, uh, those who be a part of that women's study will be looking at this. Hopefully I won't ruin everything and spoil it for you. Um, But it's... You know, it's when, you, when preachers and pastors study, sometimes they read the Word of God and think, well, I need to get a sermon out of this. Um, I reject that thought and that whatever I preach is also to be for my life. Um, and so as I study, um, I see this is for my own life and not just to preach on something on Sunday. But I do also have devotional readings that are apart from what I'm preparing on Sundays. And so what I want to share with you today is out of my devotional readings. I'm kind of reluctant to, to classify it as a sermon, um, but I think it's the very much the point of a sermon is what I want to be sharing. Um, that as I've been reading, I've been going into the book of James on my own uh, the last uh, couple weeks, and then it became confirmed to me through other people uh, in our church body, a separate from what I was doing, and uh, bringing attention to the book of James, uh, folks like Teddy O'Neill and uh, Matt Smith. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, God's been doing some um, teaching in my life, and that's something we always want. And I just want to share uh, some of what God has brought to my attention through the book of James as it pertains not only to our church, But I think that God will bring things here to you, regardless of what's going on in your life. I know in my life, I'm wrapped up by church. But when I'm honest, I know you're not. Some some of you are. But most of you, it's about what you're going through in your day-to-day. In your workplace. Or in your family life. Or perhaps maybe in your house and what needs to be done or not done. And I know that's very much where your mind is, or perhaps on lunch. Um, but regardless, I think that there are things that need to be learned, because it's said and done, or it's, it will be just a matter of time before we go through trials of various sorts. And James was written to folks who were going through trials of various sorts. And there are some important lessons. In fact, there's really two lessons I want you to get. These are two lessons I believe God's put upon my heart and mind through the, His Word. And I was started thinking, how, how can I put this out? Do I need to do some separate podcasts and I write some letters? Do I need to write some books? Or just, you know, and I thought, I'm preaching Sunday. Why don't I just talk about this? Um, and so, um, with that thought, I, I want to go through, I have ambitions of going through four chapters of James. Um, but I know very well that I may not just get past uh, chapter 1. 
Um, but we'll, we'll do as the Lord allows and helps me through uh, this time together. And But what I would like to do is uh, just as a, a preface to read together verses 1 through 12 of James 1. I think that there's very much to the heart um, of this in that passage. And so as we read this together, let's stand as we read James chapter 1, verse 1 through 12. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect to complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. He gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. For he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will not pass away. Or he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You may be seated. The author of this book is by given the name James. It's most likely uh, James, the brother of Jesus, stepbrother of Jesus. That is the one uh, that writes this. He seems to be writing from Jerusalem out to uh, those uh, cast out from Jerusalem or left Jerusalem. And he seems to be speaking from a place of authority. And uh, we know from uh, Paul in the book of Galatians and other places that James The brother of Jesus is one of the major leaders of the church in Jerusalem. We know that James uh, did not really become a believer in Jesus until after the resurrection. Because (laughs) he's his brother, for crying out loud. I mean, how many of you are willing to worship your brother? Okay? Uh, And so when the resurrection occurs, it blows James' mind, evidently. And uh, he becomes a follower of of Jesus. Uh, And so we know that this is written fairly early on. Uh, This is certainly written before the destruction of Jerusalem, as he is mentioning Jerusalem, or writing from this place. Um, And so many folks believe this to be somewhere between around 44 to 48. Uh, We do not believe this is James. um, Of the disciple, the apostle James was killed early on, being one of the first uh, apostles to be killed, and that occurring somewhere on, around 44. Uh, and so this is most likely the brother of Jesus. And now let me just make a little note, because there has evidently been some buzz uh, in archaeological circles and scholarly circles of the New Testament of this ancient uh, piece of paper, a uh, piece of script, uh, referring to the wife of Jesus. All right. Now, if you had heard some of this, let me just bring a little bit in, in, in contrast to the book of James. Uh, most 
people believe that this little writing that was found was somewhere around the 400s. Okay, somewhere around the four, 400 years after, or close to 400 years after Jesus is when this is dated. And it's, uh, we don't have the beginning part. We don't have the ending part. All we have is this little excerpt about this. And so we don't know the context whatsoever. And furthermore, that this one who's bringing such prominence to this is done with an agenda as she has written many books speaking about the role of women and promoting what she sees as errors in the New Testament regarding the role of men and women uh, in, uh, in the church. And so I just want to inject a little just thinking about this. When I've got something that's dated around 400, I don't know the context, I don't know really the author of it whatsoever. Um, and then I've got James written around 44 to 48 that is attested to, attested to by many of the early church. Here's what I'm going to just bring this to your attention. Why do we run after such the scholarly famous things when you've got the Gospels and the New Testament that is so much more superior and is being endorsed by those who are in that time period? Just, I know that's out there a little bit, and as I'm giving this bio about James, it just comes to my mind this might be a good time to talk about that. Now, notice he writes to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, and that's an interesting phrase because uh, the 12 tribes we often know as Jews and Judaism, but he's referring to believers. And he uses this phrase, the 12 tribes of, uh, of the dispersion, and referring to the church age now. Uh, and bringing out the bridges of how God has worked in the Old Testament and now how God is working in the New Testament among the Jews and now to the Jews that are spread out in Christ, dispersion referring to most probable that time when Saul, before he becomes the Apostle Paul, his, his uh, and vendetta or his agenda is to wipe out those who follow Christ and they bring much persecution to the believers in Jerusalem. This is where Stephen is martyred. And after Stephen's martyred, the Bible makes mention of them, the, the believers being scattered out, out of fear of this persecution, out of fear of Saul and others like him. And so uh, J- James is writing to these who are now spread out around Jerusalem and the various regions. And they're starting to share their faith with Samaritans and then eventually get spread out to the Gentiles. And so he gives greetings. Now, you just need to know that when he says greetings, it's the same form of the word as the next word you see in verse 2. Count it all joys. The same form that's in there. And what I would present to you is that verse 2 could very well be somewhat of a subtitle for this book. It could be very much a, a, a subject that he's bringing out to this book. He's addressing a very present felt need among the believers that are going through persecutions of various sorts, going through adversities, moving, and they're separated by finances and things like that. That is a new day of difficulty for them. And so he says to these people who are going through various trials, and he gives them words of instruction, and he gives us a command in verse 2 that is probably one of the most, what we would view, dubious commands uh, and suspect to reason. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds. Perhaps your translation says, count it pure joy. Either way, we don't like it. And we think, that is probably one of the more ridiculous things I've ever heard. Pastor, please explain this. It sounds good when we just say it generically. 
trials of various kinds. But when we talk specifically, when I think about the Norses, many of you may know the Norses, and Alexis, who their daughter is going through such severe migraines, fluid on the brain, uh, blood clots, and we don't know why, nor do we know what will fix it. And I say, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. How dare we say that in front of a family like this? When you are going through economic hardships, when some of you have lost jobs, I think about R.D. who was for so long without a job, and then we think, Pastor, how dare you say that? Count it all joy when this happens. When I was attending a funeral of my aunt this past Friday, and I was talking to my uncle, and, and she had had Parkinson's for 16 years. And she was in this, the church I was at previously, and I saw her attend in church, but honestly, it was probably about 12 years ago since she has last been in, in a church body. And her husband, I've been watching my uncle as he's just being, uh, seems like a shell of what he used to be because he's worn out and tired of taking care of his wife. He counted all joy. My brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds. I quoted this verse to my dad when he was in the hospital uh, last week with cellulitis. And I said, you know, Dad, you said this verse to me probably about nine years ago when we were in hospital and preparing for surgery for my wife. And he said, count it all joy. So let me do the, repay the favor. <laughs> Count it all joy when you go through these things. When in a church you see dear good folks that are no longer a part of the church and you grieve and you mourn and you deal with broken relationships that may be in your family or broken relationships that may be in a church body and you think, God, how can we count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds? And that phrase various kinds brings out yeah he's talking about you he's talking about you when when we're having a hard time just staying caught up with work or staying caught up with school and then the exertions of other life of other parts of life comes upon us and we don't know how we can make it i just want to share i am not the one who's gone through the most trials of various kinds but I've gone through trials of various kinds, and you've gone through trials of various kinds, and you will. And this Bible tells me to count it all joy. How on earth? And so James explains it with the next verse, the next few verses. And you notice that phrase, for you know, it's the explanation. It's the, the, the wording that says, well, let me explain what I said. For you know this, right? You, you know when you go through trials that this happens, right? Do you know this? Well, what do what is it that he's explaining? Well, verse 3, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And we say, Yeah. So, I'm fine without some steadfastness in my life if it means less trials. Right? That's what we read. But, but James is saying, Well, here's the explanation. And here's the thought. When trials, God does work. 
and trials, God does work. And so that's kind of what he's bringing out. And the work of steadfastness, in verse 4, he explains a little bit about that. Steadfastness. Verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect. And we have trouble with that. Let steadfastness have its full effect. It's the steadfastness is, is literally remain under. Remain under this hardship. Remain under this trial. Soak, uh, absorb it. Soak in it for all it's worth that you may learn all that can be learned. Really? Isn't our nature when we have something bad in our mouth, we spit it out? Yeah, I love that about having little boys, two-year-old, four-year-old. My sister, and the daughters love this. Because they love feeding a two-year-old sour grapes and just to watch the reaction. And it's a, a normal reaction, right? We just, oh, let's get this out. And, and, and that's how we invite life. And we see this and we just want to spit it out. But instead he says, let it remain. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. That, that you may be matured. Verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without approach that it will be given him. In times of temptation, in times of trial rather, uh, it is important, it is imperative that we start praying, God, grant me wisdom and how to learn in this trial. Because the question we always ask is, God, why is this happening? Can I just fly away like a bird and land on some other scene where stuff like this doesn't happen? I can go to some other family where people don't act like this. I can go to some other workplace where people don't treat me this way. I can go to some other church where things aren't like this. And we want to fly away. But instead, James says, ask for wisdom. Ask for wisdom. Now listen, here's what I want you to learn. And this is what I'm going to bring out in this text. Trials turn to joy only when Jesus is valued above all else. Trials turn to joy only when Jesus is valued above all else. And so when James is saying pray for wisdom, this is part of the wisdom. God, help me to see how Jesus can be more of my life in this time period. And whatever I'm going through. Let me kind of go through verse 6. He tells you, all right, pray. Ask God to give this generous. And and he says he will give generous. And and if you don't have wisdom, it's because you're not asking. Because it's not God's fault that we're fools. All right? It's not God's fault that we're fools. God will provide it. But he provides it in prayer with this little stipulation that we, that we don't do it with doubting. Verse 6, let him ask in faith with no doubting. You know what that word doubting means? It means willfully dividing. Willfully divided. Don't doubt in such a way that you're, you're divided about what you really want in life. Okay? about what you really want in life. He says, don't be doubting this way, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. This person wants one thing and says he wants another, but these things are not working together. And so sometimes they want this, and sometimes they want Jesus. Sometimes they want what they want apart from Jesus. Notice what it goes on to say. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Double-minded. The problem I've had most of my life is not that I, 
Not that I wanted Christ. It's that I wanted Christ and. And you fill in the blank. That's been my greatest problem. I want Christ and I want a comfortable life. Honestly, that's the thing I deal with the most. The problem is that these are not reconciled. And every once in a while, I'll get in a situation where they come full in conflict with one another. And I am double-minded. I am doubting. Which way should I go? What should I do? And in times of trials and times of adversity, guess what is challenged? My desire for a comfortable life. Now, you may have something else. That's where I'm at. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with the scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. You remember I talked about our desire to avoid the problems, to avoid the trials. Sometimes we will seek Riches, or we'll use riches to get out of hardships in our life. Or perhaps maybe it's to say is to pine away because we don't have money and we think, oh, if I just had that amount of money, then life would be so much easier right now. And so that where we fit in verse 9, he says, You understand, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Do not understand that in Christ you have enough. In Christ you've got the wisdom of God. And God will give you wisdom generously. And you don't have to have X amount of dollars to be wise. And you can be rich. And you may not be wise. Because the the wisdom of God does not depend on the riches of man. And the riches of man is a passing, fleeting thing. And so there's the humiliation of saying, I've worked all this and I've got all this money and it doesn't really count. For wisdom. Now verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So, this is it. there's a large influence in the book of James of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. If you are reading the book of James... You need to have in your mind the Sermon on the Mount, and you'll see how James has been shaped by the teachings of Jesus, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. But you've got this blessed, the beatitude, the, the blessed, the man who remains steadfast under trial. The person who says, here's the trial, I'm going to stay under this, and I'm going to seek that which God wants to teach me in the midst of this. And what is it that God's going to bring out? First of all, we've seen that he's revealing our double-mindedness. And so the trial is working against our double-mindedness. And that we want Christ and we want something else. And, and this is being exposed in the time of trial. And so blessed the man who remains steadfast. For when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Life is found when it's sought in Jesus Christ. The crown of life to say... God will reward you when you seek Christ in the midst of all these things and not the Christ and, and you fill in the blank. So he's bringing out the reward. The, the point of it, notice how what he says, which God has promised to those who love him. What's the point? Love God. How do we love God? It's done. Jesus said, I am the way. We love God through Jesus. And so the testing and trials, the point of it is to love God, love Christ, 
And God rewards that in the midst of that trial, those who remain under steadfastness to seek and love God. To say in the midst of whatever the trial may be, whatever you feel is threatened to be taken away from you, be it your health, be it your friend, be it your income, be it you just fill in the blank, to say, but I've got Christ. I've got Christ. And the question is being asked, is Christ enough in the midst of that? Now, there's two strategies we often have in times of trials. When things are uncomfortable, when we don't like it, when our relationship and our marriages are broken, what do we tend to do? Well, verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each man is, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. So the tendency that when life is uncomfortable is we start looking for supplements. Supplements to Christ to say, if I've got this, then maybe life will be a little bit more enjoyable. Uh, if, if I can have some good rest, or maybe I just need a vacation, or maybe I need a new car. Or, and, and you just go looking for supplements to help you endure whatever it is you're going through. We're being tempted. But James wants you to understand this temptation is not from God. This temptation is risen from our own desires. Our own desires that come from us. And so we think if I just, and it could be just as simple as, this is a bad day. All right. So guys, ladies, what do we say? This is a bad day. At the end of this day, I'm going to get some. <laughs> there you go. Chocolate, ice cream, coffee. You fill in the blank. I probably filled in most of your blanks with those three. Um, I want nothing better to go home and take a hot bath and whatever, you know, take a rest. And I'm going to go to my escape world. But the thing is, it doesn't work, does it? Because if that worked, then the next night you wouldn't have gone for more chocolate. All right? Um, it's a temporary fix. And so that's subtle. It's small. But I think the danger is still there. Ask any doctor what happens if you eat ice cream every night. I could probably tell you some of that. Um, and so he says, look, that's coming from you. And that's our tendency. But understand, verse 15, here's the problem. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Death. In trials, we, tend, we try to evade by enjoyments in our life. We, we try to evade what we're dealing with by putting enjoyments in our life. But listen, delights, divorce from God, brings death. Delights, divorce from God, brings death. And that's the word of warning that James is telling us. Is in times of trial, when we try to go to these other happy places, and we try to escape out of the trials, then it's not really fixing it. It's not really fixing it. In fact, it's making it worse by running away and adding to what God has done and doing in our life by supplementing life with Christ and brings death. Notice why he says, verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Understand what you're doing. Don't be deceived by your desires. And, and so I'm not talking about bad things. 
I'm, I'm going to get high on marijuana, I'm going to get drunk or whatever it may be. It could be very well good things, but we've made these good things the source of joy and the source of, of evading whatever we're going through. And James says, don't be deceived about this. When it's a delight divorced from God, it brings death. So what does he say? Verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He's saying, don't divorce the delights from your God. Understand that God is the source of all good things. And so why are we going to take so much joy out of the things that God made when we can have God and find delight and God, the one who gives all these things? And so he's making an argument that in these times of trials, he says, don't go to other things. Go to God. Rest in Him. Stay underneath Him and seek Him. Depend on Him and not stuff. And if you do that, you will find that steadfastness will have its perfect work in you. But we tend to squirm. And get out from underneath our Creator. I have a philosophy as far as with cats go and children. It's a little risky. <laughs> um, my my goal is to help the cat develop tolerance um, because I know that Canaan can be mean unknowingly to a cat and I don't really want the cat to scratch Canaan or Evan or any of the girls. So from early on, early age, I would cradle them like a baby. All right, now you know cats don't normally, if you have a cat that hasn't have never been done that, they don't like that. They, you know, some of you are thinking, if you did that my cat, it'd be bad and it would be. But since a baby, I've always, or since kittens, I've always held them like babies. And I would just, you know, I'm sorry, I'm a little sadistic sometimes, and I have to do uh, filter that. But, you know, I would just play with the cat, throw him around, stuff like that. Now, here's the thing. I don't try not to hurt the cat, okay? All right? But when that child comes and grabbing the cat, whatever way a child will do it, so far our cat tends not to scratch uh, the child, and so far my theory's working, okay? But here's the thing. The cat shouldn't trust me, all right? It should. The cat knew my heart. The cat shouldn't trust me. But I'm the owner of the cat. I feed the cat. And so when I come out, knows I'm somehow responsible for the food that's there. And so it tolerates me, and I tolerate the cat, and it helped the cat tolerate the child. All right? But every once in a while, the cat squirms. Doesn't like. It's had enough. Get out of here. And, and will try to scratch me. All right? And that happens. I've grown up with that all my life. I can handle that. I don't want my children to do that. All right? Here's our tendency. And this is a poor analogy because we can trust God so much more than the cat can trust me. Um, but when there's hardships going on, our tendency is to assign to God values and characteristics that would probably be fitting of a cat toward me. 
What are you guys just mean? Sadistic? Are you just cruel? And all through texts in the scripture and all through history and the cross and the resurrection, God is telling us one message. I love you. I love you. I am working for you. I'm working in you. And when we want to know what God thinks about us, we look at the cross because that was God's chosen moment in time to reveal his thoughts and hearts toward us. But in the midst of trials and circumstances, we tend to think, God, this must be what you really think about me. Whatever it is I'm going through, God, you must be punishing me right now. You must really hate me. Or God, you must not even be aware. You must not care because I don't know if I can handle much more of this. But what about the cross? The thing is, is that whatever we're experiencing right now seems to loom larger than what God has chosen to reveal himself through in Jesus Christ and on the cross and the resurrection. Don't be deceived. God is working in this too. Let steadfastness, that steadfastness to say, God, I'm going to trust that you're at work. I'm going to trust that you're not asleep, that you're aware, and I'm trusting that you love me, and I'm trusting that in the midst of this, still there is a purpose of which you and you alone are working toward. So we keep on reading verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures when we're asking, God, what are you doing? He's working us that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What's the first fruits of his creatures? To be made in his image. To be made in the image of his son. That God knows that the worst thing that could happen for us is for us to be content and satisfied with something less than the best of what you were made to be. And that is to be made in his image. The most beautiful one. Of what God is of who of this world. Now, verse nineteen. All that to say, up to this point, one tendency that we have in times of trial and temptations is to squirm and get out and try to find some supplement to make this a passing thing. Now, here's the other tendency that we have. All right, God, I'm in the circumstance. I don't like it. Wicked men are rising up against God's people and they seem to be prevailing. That's wrong. Injustice is happening. That's wrong. Let me change the circumstance. Let me, by force of my will, change what I'm going through. Verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. I want you to underline this. Write it down. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Our tendency, when I'm in the midst of life, is I want to manipulate it by force of my will. And then I'll justify it later on. Well, God, that was right. They were clearly wrong. And that needs to be changed. Someone needed to speak up. Notice, though, what he says here, verse 20. What is it that's being hoped to accomplish? 
The righteousness of God is what's being hoped to be accomplished. We're not talking about just being selfish about your toys. We're talking about, I want to see God's righteousness being done. This is a good thing. I want to, to change the circumstances so the righteousness of God is exalted. But notice what he says, the wrath of man can't do it. It doesn't happen that way. But if you're like me, sometimes it seems like we don't have control of that, doesn't it? I mean, we're all good. I mean, we don't like it. It seems like it builds, builds, and all of a sudden it just snaps. We don't think about what we're about to say, but all we feel is a great burden to say it, a great passion to say it. We don't feel it at the time, but afterwards we realize, man, my heart was really beating fast during all that. And then after that episode has occurred, you're not entirely sure what you all said. <laughs> Someone may say, did you realize you said it? No, I didn't say that, did I? It's, it's almost like an instinct just kicks in. And something just snaps in our mind. How do we keep that from happening? The anger of man. It, it's, it's, it's say, God, I don't like what's going in. I don't see you as being the author of this. And I'm just going to change this. And, then, and you know, I just want to bring out, they're dealing with persecution. They're dealing with, with uh, wicked folks or folks who hated Jesus Christ, lashing it out against God's loved ones. A persecution. That part of us that wants to rise up when we hear about believers being persecuted and says, this must stop. James says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, how do we deal with this? Verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Verse 21, the first part is, is repent. Turn from filthiness and rampant wickedness. And we think, oh, well, that's, that's you know, drugs, rock and roll, alcohol. And, and we, we kind of label it that. We think, well, that's not me, right? Well, what's this filthiness and rampant wickedness he's talking about? He was just talking about our tendency of, of satisfying and supplementing Christ with things to help us to get out of the situation we're in. It's a delight divorced from God. A delight divorced from God becomes something that attacks the role of God in our life and therefore becomes wicked and filthy. Then he says, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. Meekness. What does it mean to be meek? Well, you think about the Beatitudes, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, that bankrupt spirit, understanding that you are a sinner and that there's nothing in your life that God says, hey, I want that person. Yeah, that's, that's all of us. All of us are bankrupt before God. There's nothing within us that is desirable before God outside of the fact that God just loved us because he made us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourn what? Mourn their bankrupt spirit. To say, God, I am not proud in who I am. I mourn that there is sin in my life. There is selfishness in my life. I mourn that, God. And the Bible says, Jesus, they will be comforted. Blessed are, and the third beatitude is, blessed are the meek. 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meekness that's being talked about is sometimes we think of someone really weak and mild. I mean, think, think about Clark Kent, you know. That's, he's a meek person. I mean, he just takes whatever. But you know, the beautiful thing about Clark Kent is that we all knew he was really Superman. You know, and that if you wanted to, he could change the world. I mean, he could circle around the world so many times and make time goes backwards. <laughs> you know, what, what does it mean to be meek? It's, it's not just a weakness. It's, it's to understand authority and have the power at your disposal, but place it under the authority that's in your life. It's a picture of a stallion, a, a horse, a mighty horse that has all kinds of muscles and endurance, but with the rain uh, has meekness to be under that control of just that little bit of rain and bit. So he says, receive with meekness the implanted word. So to allow the authority of God to be in your life through the implanted word. The implanted word refers to, one, Jesus, but also what we know about Jesus through God's word, through the Bible. And so receiving the planted word is the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit that's been implanted into a believer, all right, that is in line with the word of God, which is able to do what? Able to save your souls. You remember last week how we learned about love and what love was not? And we saw how difficult loving is. And one of the end results is, God, we need someone to save our souls. Implanted word of God in times of anger, when we're out of control and we don't like it, we need someone to save us from this impulse, this desire. It is the implanted word of God, that power that comes into our life that we subject ourselves to. And so he says, verse 22, be doers of that word and not just hearers only. In other words, it's not just Bible knowledge. You can go to church all the time, go to all the classes and know all the Bible, but if it does not have an effect of living in your life, the Bible is dead in you. There must be, I hear your word, I understand it, I will change and do. One of the things about Sunday school classes and small group leaders, we were saying, it's not Bible knowledge you're trying to pass on. It's transformation that is the goal of our time together, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind through the word of God. And so he goes on and explains that. He gives an illustration, verse 24, it's like looking in a mirror and you don't even ever do anything. I mean, who looks in a mirror not to do anything? That's what we call a vain person. They just like looking in the mirror. <laughs> All right? Most of us, we look in the mirror with the point of, okay, I'm going to be prepared to do whatever is needed depending on what I see in the mirror. All right? Uh, and so that's the point he's bringing out. When we go to the Word of God, it's not just to read it and to think, oh, that's just poetry, but it's to say, I'm going to read this with the desire of it having the impact in my life. And so that's the point he gets to in the end of chapter 1. And so who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer acts, will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's a religious and does not bridle his tongue but sees his heart, this person's religion is worthless. In other words, when we say that we love God and love others, it must impact how we talk. If it's not impacting how we talk, then it's not impacting us. It goes on, religion that is pure and undefiled before God. The Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. In other words, ultimately, to love God and love others. And he's saying in another way what Jesus has said. Loving God and loving others. Now, let me bring out the second truth that's really important. Remember verse 5, we talked about wisdom. If anyone of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. What is wisdom? What is wisdom? 
Well, if you go to chapter 3, verse 13 through 18, James never really leaves this point. He never leaves this point of how we deal with trials. He talks about loving God in, in chapter 2. Uh, we talk about how if we're going to say that we're going to love God, if we're going to say that we're going to have the word of God in our life, changing our life, then we must love all people. Therefore, we must not have the sin of partiality because that's not loving people. And you understand verses 8 uh, through 13 that if you break that, if you're just partial to someone, if you break that love, then you break in all the law. So either you love all people or you break all the law. You get that? Read chapter 2, verse 1 through 13. His main point is that either you love all or you break all the law. And that's why we say we're bankrupt in spirit. Because we've broken all the law when we do not love all. And then in verse 14 through 26, he's talking about how faith must act. If we're going to love all, it's bringing out our faith, uh, bringing our trust in God. In chapter 3, we see uh, that when faith is acting, the, one of the chief places faith must act is in our tongue and how we talk. Faith is expressed in how we talk. We see it all the way through verse 1 through 12, and then it takes us verse 13 through 18 again. What's wisdom? What's wisdom? Who's wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. That's that phrase again. Meekness. Under control. Recognizing the authority that's in your life. And so by your good conduct, you show your works. Before, I might have looked at wisdom. And so wisdom is just wise counsel. It's how to live your life skillfully. It has a lot to do with counsel. You know, when someone says, I want to, I want to get your wisdom. I want to talk to you and just get some wisdom. Usually it has the mind of just conversation. Get your input on things. That's not what he's going with here. He says, it's your conduct. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So as I read this, I asked this question, what is wisdom? And from what I was gleaning in the book of James, I think it's confirmed in in Proverbs, here's the definition of wisdom. Wisdom is seeing the beauty, seeing the beauty of being under God's authority in all cases. Wisdom is seeing the beauty of being under God's authority in all cases. Proverbs 1 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fear of the Lord, all reverence to know God's place, to know where you're not, to be under his authority, the fear of God. It is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. You see this throughout Proverbs. But if you read this, in that that definition, notice again, James 3, verse 13 through 18, what he's being said. If we understand that wisdom is seeing God's authority, the beauty of being under God's authority, isn't that what's challenged the most when we're in times of trial? When life is hard, when 
When we say, if, is this what it means to be under God's authority? If this is God's will, if God has allowed this to happen, then forget that. I don't want to be under God's authority. Isn't that the voice that cries out in us? Right? I'm the, I'm the only one that does that. <laughs> okay? That's what we scream out. But notice what he says, verse 14, knowing that definition, the, the contrast. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. If you've got jealousy in your life, you once were just had respect for someone and their gifts and abilities, now is crossed over to where you're discontent because they've got something you don't have. You got selfish ambition. Someone's got place. God put them in a place and a, par, a place of promise, a place of influence that just bugs you and irritates you because how can they be in that place? You're not any, they're not any better than you. Well, they're in that place because God placed them there. God allowed that to happen. And if in our mind we rail against that, we don't like being under God's authority when we see someone else and where they are in God's authority, under his authority, is in a place of greater promise and influence. And it bothers us. Do not boast and be false to the truth. Don't tell yourself that you're just following God. When you use jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. One of the problems that can happen in any church, and I'm not saying this has happened in our church, this is just observation of churches in general, is there is a thing called influence, there's a thing called power, and it becomes something that people wish to obtain and desire influence. And sometimes they will do so and overreach where God has placed them. That is not wisdom. In my heart and life, where it hits me is to say, God, if I have any influence in this church, it's only because I'm under your authority. And if I'm not under your authority in any area or in every area of my life that you bring to my attention, then I cannot think... That you're going to honor any authority that you've given to me. I must be under his authority. How does this play out? Family life. Parents who, you know, we all have children that they don't grasp this at all. But if we want God's help and helping our children understand the authority and them being under the authority of parents, then parents, are you under the authority that God has placed in your life? Are you remaining under? Do you see the beauty of that? In your workplace, in our government, it plays a part to recognize this, but to see that in the situation that God has made, He's made, and part of it is to test, are we going to remain under His authority? Verse 16, where there's jealous and selfish ambition, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But where there's purity, there's peaceable, gentle, open reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Interesting in the Beatitudes, when Jesus starts off saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who are meek, blessed are those 
who are blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are meek, for they shall inherit on earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be filled. It goes on, and the end result is blessed are the peacemakers. What's, what's the end goal? Or the end result is that we're peacemakers that comes from being under the authority of God. Now notice chapter 4 goes on. And he elaborates upon that a little bit. If we don't know the wisdom of God, we don't understand the beauty of being under the authority of God in every situation, then don't be surprised when there's quarrels and fights among us. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Remember, it goes back to understanding the value of Jesus above everything else. And the problem is that we want Jesus, but then we want other things. And he says that's the root of problems, of wars and fights and struggles in our own life. Because we've got passions that are war at war within you. You can look at it in the family dynamic. You can look at it in your own life. You can look at it in a church life. You can look at it in the national scene, an international scene. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You say, God, I want you, but then I also want this. And so I'm going to want you so that you can supply this in my life. It's like saying to a husband, husband, could I have some money? I'd like to hire a prostitute. He's saying, God, I want your riches. I want your help. I want your benefits so that I can feel good about this. Listen, here's where that comes in in our church life. It is to say, God, we want you. Green Pines, we want you. We want, we want the Lord in our life. Not so that Green Pines will look good before our community. We want the Lord in our life. Not so that life will be so much easier. And we, we want the Lord in our life. Not so that people will stop leaving or, or that people will start coming. Lord, we want you in our life. Not so that this church will grow. Lord, we want you for your sake. That's what we're talking about here. And this is the check in our own mind. This is check in my life. And I just want to call us a little bit to, to pray about this. If we keep on reading, it's interesting what he tells us to do. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, no matter how religious the worldliness is? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy of the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? In other words, he's given us the spirit of God and he doesn't want the spirit of God being sold out for cheap things that he's made. He wants all of our life. He's jealous of the spirit of God that we have all of our life to him. But notice this verse six, he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If we are fools in our heart, God's going to resist us until we understand the beauty of being under his authority. So what does he tell us? Humble yourselves. Verse seven, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Place yourself under the authority of God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you because that is what you want the most to say, say in a time of trial that is Jesus above all else. And that turns the trial into joy. And so he says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded, to say, God, I want you. I don't want just a good image. I just don't want a good church. I don't want just a good family. I want God. That's where we're at. Be wretched and mourn and weep. 
Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Isn't that a funny thing to say when he says, count it all joy? Let your joy be turned into gloom. If your joy is over little things, insignificant things, let that joy be turned to gloom until the gloom turns to Christ and Christ turns it to joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Here's the application I want us to consider to do. I want us to pray as a church. I want us to have prolonged times of prayer as a church. Not so that church will be good, but our church will have God. Here's how that can happen. On your way out, if you look to your left as you walk out, there on the desk, welcome desk there, is a handout of 30 days of prayer. I would ask that you would take that challenge of 30 days of prayer. You can begin on October. You can begin tomorrow. But take that 30 days of prayer. It is something, just so you know, it's provided by our state convention, but as you can see, it's not about our state convention. It's about what the Lord's doing here. But it has some helpful things for us to pray for. As you look in your bulletin, you see October 21st to 24th, Jerry White will be here. Jerry White, his emphasis is on spiritual renewal, being refreshed in the spirit of God. What does it mean to know who God is, to worship God? Um, you guys, you, you know, we don't have a series of meetings and call them revival and say, okay, revival's going to happen. I don't want us to pray just for God's working in that time, because I, I, this is something I want us to pray for, but even more that we'll have God. I think God can use that time and be done through prayer. But I want to invite you, in this time, you'll see in that back of the, the handout, there's a place where you can officially log up. They can, the convention will give you text or emails if you'd like to have these prayer promptings that way. Um, but I want us to pray for as a church, as we as we pray together, to consider as a, a church-wide fast. Um, a fast, and I'll have to talk about that later on. But I believe that in our situation is a fast to say we agree with God. God's doing some things that are challenging and hard in our midst. And so let's just echo that in our own life by refusing to eat. And this is a medical thing, too. If that's medically out of the window, then you can find another way to fast. Um, media or something else. Um, but the, the point of it is not to say, God, look how much we're sacrificing. You've got to answer our prayer. That, that's wrong. The point of it is to say, God, we hunger for you. We desire you more than even good things in our life. These delights divorced from God can lead to death. And as Jesus himself said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the Father. And the question is, do we as a church have a heart that hungers for the word from the Father?